so this is the banter period, Nathan. We usually like to open these with, you know, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of conversation to keep it off the cuff and loose. And Talking mm-hmm. about the snacks. Bring that we've people eaten. in. Yep. It's real. Um, it's very personal. You know, we like to think that this is the kind of opening to the show that lets people feel like they're right in the living room with us, as you are today. Which sometimes is really... Eric sings. <laughs> I have sang before. That yeah, I know it was a terrible choice. So if you have any banter, now would be the time to, to bring it to the table. I don't know if, if you're prepared at all, but um, how's the mango Lacroix treating you? It's really, it's really good. Yeah. It actually might be my favorite uh, supplanting. Pomplamoose. Is that how you say it? Pomplamoose. Yes, it means grapefruit. I've been in saying pamplemouse. No. <laughs> is that not it? <laughs> what is fact. a what is a? It's a grapefruit. It's a grapefruit. It's literally it's a grapefruit. Is it, Why isn't it just grapefruit? Is it the because French word? They're fancy. They're not that fancy. I they're buy it at fancy. Aldi. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's Lacroix. So like, yeah. you know, there's French influence in you know from the fur trappers, the French Canadian fur trappers coming <laughs> <Wow>. down. <laughs> We're just going to get into the way to have a French Canadian fur trapper line ready. Thank you. Wow. Sometimes we the call you know, Moose, folks. my dog, Pupple Moose, the best of the original LaCroix flavors. Aw, man. Know. That's heartwarming. It is. My heart's been warmed. And on that note, we should probably say welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. And today we have a guest. Um, he is a writer. You can find his work in places like The Nation, in The Baffler, in Jewish Currents, in Book Forum, various other places like that. Um, he is now an associate editor at Jewish Currents. Woo! And he is the literary critic your mother warned you about. Today <laughs> we have on the show um, all-around good boy Nathan Goldman. Say hello, Nathan. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> Excellent. How bring. did that yeah. feel? Like, oh, did you, so like, good. I can see why you like doing that. I know, right? It's amazing. <laughs> you yeah. know, for the first like year or so, I used it sparingly because Eric would turn bright red. You know, he's so because he's so pale and you know, just oh, I, gross oh, looking. I know. He's just real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're so glad to have you here. Thank you so in much for having room. me. Thank you. Yeah. So we've got a what I think is going to be a really interesting discussion about. We're basically, I think, the idea here today and the way we've conceived of it is to talk about talking about books. Like we're going to discuss a little bit what we're seeing in terms of patterns as it relates to like book discourse online, book discourse, and you know critical reviews, you know things like that, and. Hopefully we end up somewhere interesting. Uh, before we get to that, how about the basic rundown? Oh boy. Okay. So remember at the beginning of this month, folks, when we said that if you are a Patreon member, we would be getting our shit together for the summer um, mm. and we would have everything early and on time. Well, we forgot about Memorial Day. Um, and so we're going to both be traveling. So we're actually going to have your May episodes. It'll be like you. June 1st. It'll be June 1st. But I can announce that our third special episode, in addition to our query show and our first pages show, is going to be um, a show where we talk about the next step in the three-dimensional chess game that is your writing career. That is your second book. Oh. So I look forward wow, to fun. giving I Eric so I many owns. I didn't actually know we were doing Because he, <laughs> he just finished his first book. Oh, yeah. Well... We'll see about that. Yeah. So um, we're going to be talking about that, about the kind of conversations you should be having um, with yourself and your critique partners and your agent and your editor and all sorts of fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So tune in. Remember, you have to be a member of Patreon to get access to those episodes. 
search for Print Run Podcast on Patreon. <laughs> I could give you the link, but it's literally just backslash yeah. Print Run Podcast. Um, for $3, you can get the Query Show. For $8, you get this fun special episode and a First Pages episode. Um, and if you have First Pages questions, suggestions, uh, good compliments about Eric's hair, send them to us. We Oof. are printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So, your Nathan. hair looks beautiful today. <laughs> it does Man, look nice. I don't, I don't get that a lot, to tell you the truth. Um, it's been kind of, I really had, I wore it pretty long in like college and stuff, but thank you for making me, for appreciating me for who I am. You're today. welcome. Um, Nathan, you're always beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> so, Nathan, you are a writer, obviously. You are someone who is now an editor. You're someone, I think, more than anything, um, you are online. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. With, with me specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I spend um, not a little amount of time <laughs> discussing what we're seeing in terms of the book discourse. And, of course, everything we say about it is glowing and positive. That's right. And we would never have a single negative thought about the Internet ever. Four stars. Um, but so in thinking about, like, where to begin with this discussion about how we see people talk about books and kind of what it means and where it might head... Um, I noticed two patterns. And the first is that people have a really hard time being negative about um, books when they're discussing them because it either feels to them to be rude or it feels as though, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, in 2019, basically every author apart from a very select few is, you know, no one's exactly, you know, rich, you know, doing this. Like, you know, being an author is hard work and it's not exactly high paying work. And so you want to avoid like doing things that might hurt someone's sales, right? So that's like line number one. And then the other line of thinking that I know that I certainly have fallen into before is that everybody is too positive, that it feels as though when you see people talk about books, especially new ones from authors who are maybe perhaps in their own right very popular on the internet, especially Twitter, like it's just glowing review after glowing review after glowing review, and you get the sense that there's nothing even critical happening in terms of reading and engagement um, beyond just kind of praise. And so my question to you as someone who actually does the hard work of reviewing books and reading you know, critically and closely and you know, trying to publish you know, opinions on these things, like where do you kind of see the critics' role in this ecosystem? You know, like Where do you see your work kind of fitting within a landscape that can kind of bounce between these two extremes, you know? Yeah, it's a good question. I, it's hard because you can understand the reasons for the, the things you laid out, especially around why people want to want to be positive. We live in a culture and a moment that's not like super interested in books or taking books seriously. Yeah. No one gets paid well to do, almost no one gets paid well to do it or to think about it or any of that stuff. So you can understand why this culture sort of arises that sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wants to be positive about supporting books and supporting people who write books and uh, and supporting all the work that goes into them and to say they're culturally important and things like that. I think the, the problem is, and so I'm sort of someone who thinks that uh, discourse around books that isn't strictly positive, that's complicated or that can't be negative um, is important and is important for taking books seriously. And so I guess I see, I guess often I sort of think of the role of critics, not even quite in this uh, spectrum of like positive and negative, even though it's obviously a part of it. And I write, you know, I like 
praise or praise books or say negative things about books and reviews and just in life. But um, it seems to me like the importance of criticism should be and in like as an extension, any like discourse about books should be to sort of take them seriously by by like thinking about them and thinking with them in ways that aren't that aren't just canned or yeah. or just saying this is great that that this exists um, just because that that to me doesn't seem to take them take writing or take books uh, that with the seriousness that they merit. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. And it gets me thinking a lot about sort of this line that exists between and it's a very fluid line, I think, at this point, especially Laura in the in, I, I see it a lot in like YA, mm-hmm. you know, because the front line one because YA is probably the most vocal sect of, you know, book Twitter. Right. They're like, definitely the most logged on. That's for sure. <laughs> like, but like there's this line, there's this dividing line between promotional discussion, mm-hmm. right, where you're trying to build up, a, where you're trying to get, you know, the phrase in publishing is always word of mouth, right? Like books take off and sell well when, you know, people are talking about them. And so you want to get as many people talking as possible. And the, and the unsaid presumption there is that you want as many people talking positively as possible. And then, but then that has a way of bleeding into what you're talking about, which is critical engagement, right? And so you almost see sometimes, at least from what I can tell, is this weird kind of blurry crossover where you can't quite tell if someone is trying to engage with something in good faith on a artistic level, like they're doing what you're saying, right? Like taking it seriously, you know, trying to respect the book by maybe pointing out something that, you know, feels you know, weaker or, you know, while also praising, you know, taking basically taking a nuanced stance on it versus what you see a lot, which is sort of kind of the glowing discussion of you absolutely must buy this book, drop everything, go get it right now, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And I guess more and more to me, I sort of see that boundary as becoming almost not there in certain instances. Mm. I don't know. It's interesting because I think, yeah, because I see what you're saying because I, I think it, yeah, it's hard to because I wonder sometimes about the question of like how does it inform review writing? Yeah, and because I, I think it does. I mean, that, it is not to say there aren't like many critics who who take books really seriously yeah. who are wonderful. They there definitely are. I, the one level I see it sort of impacting coverage is not in not just at the level of what individual critics write, but in terms of of what publications are are able to or willing to assign in terms of what they think is people want to read yeah because uh, one so one way you see this is in the sort of rise of uh or the way in which often publications will might cover have less space for reviews and have more space for sort of recommendations yeah. or for lists mm. of books yeah. which which often in, uh sort of lead to that crossover a lot more of like is this a blurb is this a is this a review? Is this a write-up? Or, or what is it? Well, because they sort of cosplay as reviews, don't they? Those listicles where it's like, you got to read these. You know, when you see it from places like, um, you know, the Millions or Electric Litter Book Riot. You know, these kind of book-focused publications, right? They'll do these. Um, really, I find them to be really helpful, especially off the top of my head. Like, that, the Millions does, like, their seasonal previews and stuff. Oh, we love the Millions yeah. preview. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's, that's really good. But it does come off as... Like it looks critical. like it, it walks feels like critical. a review. Yeah, it walks like a review and talks like a review, but you also get the sense that it's mostly there. And again, there's nothing wrong with this to sell copies, right? To like get people to you know kind of pick it up. And it's just interesting, especially when you think of like 
how many different hats people in the book community can wear. Mm -hmm. Like someone is at any given point, a writer of their own work, a reviewer of others, a blurber of a third thing, you know, like it can start to kind of blend together in a way that I guess I, I, you know, to what you're saying of getting away from that positive negative spectrum, I won't put a value judgment on, but it is interesting to kind of see that pan out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, look, I think it's a, that to the degree to which that kind of thing is like, uh, like so pervasive or, yeah. or replaces space for a lot of like more lengthy or nuanced coverage. I think, like, I think it is bad. Yeah. I think it, you know, but obviously I also use that stuff. I've, you know, I have written that things like that for like literary hub does like monthly mm -hmm. lists. I've written those kind of recommendations of things that I like, like and want to recommend and am honest about. Sure. But it is a problem when that kind of thing feels like, and I guess it's just a problem of like, you know, not publications aren't uh, super well-funded to do literary coverage and stuff. So if there's not a great uh, diversity and heterogeneity of, coverage and that is the kind of thing you're left with then you're losing a lot one of the things i've always struggled with and i think eric you touched on it pretty perfectly there is not knowing the bias of the of the yeah. the, the the people or the or the vehicle that mm -hmm. is creating all of this content so one of the things that i have always found rather confusing about book criticism um, and I have to say, I don't, you know, read it quite as much as Eric does, mostly just because the books I would love to see criticism on don't often make it into, mm -hmm. into sure. like, you know, those books aren't assigned. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I, I'm always kind of stuck in between, you know, cause I'm, I came to publishing right out of academia for English. Right. And I'm always stuck between how much is this just a really good critical take based deeply in the point of view of the person writing it, or is it trying to be objective? Where, as a critic, do you fall on that spectrum? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a hard question. Like, I, it seems, I guess I sort of am ambivalent only because, look, I mean, I don't think it really makes sense to talk about assessing, like, things like books objectively in sense of, like, uh, I guess it's hard because it, in the, the position of a, of a critic you are like taking on some kind of authority i think it makes the most sense if that you think of that authority as like vested in that like having a certain amount of of having put a certain amount of work into reckoning with something and considering different like the relevant contexts and being willing to put time and work into something and that is sort of the basis of the authority but it, that shouldn't be taken to be like an objective final say on on, on a on a work, um, so in that sense, I think it makes sense to think always think of criticism as uh, as like as subjective as any other yeah. form of of writing. Um, but that's not to say I think that that it doesn't shouldn't demand like a certain degree of of rigor or like arguing something from what you know what I mean from like mm -hmm. it's not as if it's like evidence that's irrefutable or something but it's not just an Amazon book review where it's like I liked this mm -hmm. or I didn't like this exactly. there's actually reasons mm -hmm. right and oftentimes it's not black and white well if that's that right there sort of the consumer review is now something that I think really augments this whole landscape in an interesting way where mm -hmm. you've got because we're in an age where 
everything is crowdsourced, right? Like everything you want is now, or at least a lot of, you know, publishers and people, you know, they make a lot of decisions and consumers based decisions on what the masses think, right? Like you buy a book now, much less because it got a glowing review in the New York times and much more because it has 4.9 stars out of five on Goodreads, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's what people are, but, but it also creates the situation where, like all the people doing those Goodreads reviews, at least, well, most of them. There's some people do reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, and they're really nice and thoughtful. And you, but lots and lots of those people are not doing that. They are giving it five stars because they, you know, had a really great vacation while they were reading it. You know, they give it one star because their kid wouldn't shut up while they <laughs> were. Or it was you know, mailed, <laughs> and there was yeah. a and there, there was, was a, a ding right. on the cover right. or something right. like it's, that. <laughs> and so it's interesting to like think of how. And this is kind of getting back to what we were saying before, like the critical relationship to sales, it almost has to feel separate, right? Like, because I think people are used to looking at book reviews as should I buy this book or not? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, based on what you're, what you guys are both saying, that question isn't really adequate or inappropriate as a way of viewing literary criticism, you know, Mm -hmm. because it flattens it and it makes it into something. It makes it into kind of a yes, no binary decision as Mm -hmm. opposed to, this sort of more nuanced thing that I think criticism has a really necessary role right now. So as someone relatively new to, to literary criticism, um, at least in the terms that are, that, that you do, which are published in a periodical and show up, you know, not in reference libraries, Mm -hmm. but, but much more of the temporal aspect. Um, I most enjoy a review of a book that I've already read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I think it it really does function in an opposite way for me. Rather, mm-hmm. like than than hey, this is a good review in the New York Times. I'm going to buy this book. It's a lot more of I buy the book because my good friend Eric keeps talking to me about <laughs> it, and then I read it, and then I want to discuss it. Right. Yeah. No. I mean that. I think, and that feels like a healthier relationship with it because you're not using it as like a buying decision Mm -hmm. thing. You're using it as a means of engaging with the text after the fact, which to me feels smarter and like a more true use of um, where literary criticism and, you know, book reviews fall in, in this ecosystem and be and I guess like I say that to say that it feels like the criticism comes afterward. Like, so much of publishing, as you think about it, is, like, this big flurry of activity, right? Like, it's the, you know, finding the authors and selling the books and getting them published and doing the publicity tours and all that kind of stuff. And then, to me, within that landscape, the criticism comes afterward. And in that way, I almost, you know, something one thing I think about a lot is, and this is kind of, it's going to sound like a big question, but I'm not sure it is, but... Um, it feels like criticism is what ends up building the canon, if mm. that makes sense. You know, in its own way, it's like, you know, we can talk about books, and you know, you know, um, one bit of common publishing wisdom is that you know, you publicity cycles, you know, kind of come and go really fast, right? Like, you talk about a book, no matter how excited people are, it's going to come and go. Very that flurry of activity, that online discourse, that word of mouth is going to die out fast right except for pachinko but, which is the <laughs> exception that proves the rule <laughs> we will never stop talking about pachinko um but 
what lingers after that, once that dust settled, is the reviews in the places that we trust, you know? And in that way, you know, you know, we on this show talk about, you know, how is the canon getting fixed? You know, how can we make it so that it's better represented across, you know, a diversity of kind of people and walks of life? You know, how can we make it so that it's not all, you know, in the colloquial term, all dead white men, you know? Mm-hmm. It feels like to me, and I want, I'm interested in what you think of this too, like that work is actually not the work of the authors. It's the works of the critics because mm-hmm. that's who help us remember books. If that makes sense. I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, it's interesting because it makes me, I, I don't know what the role of, of critics in the sense that like I, I do it is in that process. Yeah. Cause it is, I agree. It's like, it's, it's part of that. Cause there's this, um, it feels a, a weird role, I think part, and maybe, it, well, just cause it's, um, you know, that kind of writing is still is attached to this same kind of media ecosystem and economy yeah. of like you know things uh are, are attached to news pegs which are like the publications of books and then yeah. they kind of get read or not and then they feel like they sort of drift away or something and there is it's not it's not to say there's not a legacy of especially like really particularly good criticism or particular criticism in particular uh particularly like esteemed venues or something probably does have a different kind of longevity it's just hard to say because there is in the in the sort of longer scheme of thing of of things obviously like uh you know the academy plays a lot of role in this and like what gets on syllabi what gets taught um and that's uh, a sort of adjacent but different function and so i i guess i think that maybe sort of uh critics who write for a popular audience play sort of an intermediary role or something Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's interesting because i guess they're um you know, it makes me think about like the critics who, you know, almost no one really makes a makes a living as a critic these days. Yeah. And there, but there are, you know, there as for, to the degree that there are household names or something like there are certain people. I mean, there's the people who like write for the New York Times who might be household names to like some of us who read a lot of criticism or like it seems like to certain people like James Wood who wrote for the New Republic for a long time and now writes for the New Yorker is like probably among a few people mm-hmm. who is like really kind of well-known um mm-hmm. as a critic and i wonder it seems like someone like that maybe has an undue um or a, a just a great a influence a disproportionate yeah. influence i mean it's hard to say what how, how does that tie into like a shifting canon because it's such a long-term prospect but it is interesting to think about what is the tie between this like really immediate like day-by-day publicity cycle and that longer thing and there's how does like one get to the other well so i'm actually um you're an interesting person to talk to about that specific thing because obviously you write reviews, but you also very recently, and congratulations on the new role, mm-hmm. you, you're you an editor now yeah. at a magazine. Thank you. Like you commissioned, yeah. theoretically, you know, you commissioned reviews <laughs> yeah, now. You know I what do. I mean? Like you're someone who is not only writing your own work, but you're thinking hard about, okay, what kind of reviews do we want in Jewish Currents? Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in that dynamic between how do you decide between um, reviewing things that you know people want to read about, right? Like, because it's tempting. You want to get, you want to commission reviews on books that everyone has heard of and thus people will want to read a review of versus using the that process to introduce a book that maybe people haven't heard of before, an author that is a debut writer, you know, someone who, um, you know, isn't necessarily a name brand that pe- that's going to generate an automatic click, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely something I think about or that I've started to think about as because this is like right. a recent <laughs> role for me. But you know, and it's but it's big questions. I think it is important to think about. And you know, I'm in a position because Jewish Currents, the magazine I work for and edit for, is in this particular space. Uh, well, first of all, it's it's like a lefty Jewish magazine, so there's like a particular set of concerns, right. which right. isn't to say everything we publish has immediately to do with one of those things, but that like narrows the mm-hmm. s- scope or something. It's, it's so you it's get di- fewer people you need to answer to. Right, right. <laughs> it's just I imagine the conversation if you're at like the New York Times or whatever it must be different, much different. Yeah. Uh, but um, also because we're a small magazine, it um, I think maybe. Uh, removes a certain pressure that some publications I imagine feel more to be like we have to cover certain books or something I don't think we really feel that way I mean we might if there was something in a certain zone of concerns or something but you know we don't have to have a review of everything which in a certain way removes a a pressure I think um or a yeah a, a certain kind of pressure and opens up uh space but it is a it, it is hard to think about the balance between what what seems what major or you know you sort of can have as an editor even there's this whole like apparatus of publishing that's obviously working on all of us all the time to think if I just like am not looking at you know a list or any books that are coming out I'm just sitting thinking and I'm like well what what are the big books coming out this year or something mm-hmm. we all have things in our head that didn't just come, pop into our head for no reason like they were, they were put there they were put there yeah. by good like by by people we know and by marketing campaigns and like all this stuff makes it sound very very kind <laughs> of yeah. it's very dystopian <laughs> they yeah, were put there. yeah. <laughs> just think it's just to think um i don't know so i've started thinking about like, how do you you know confront that uh yeah this is like stating it over like it's overly uh uh malicious or something but those mm-hmm. confronting those biases of thinking like i don't know well making sure you um i guess well part of it's just like how do you make sure you're aware of of a range of stuff that's coming out and right. it's much easier to be aware of of certain things it's easiest to be aware of stuff from the most major publishers that they're putting the most money behind mm-hmm. um, by already established people it's harder to hear about yeah other kinds of stuff and so what what is an editor it, do you do to to make sure you know about more stuff basically how do you go searching for that new stuff like because clearly it's not just well i'm gonna write a review about this book that somebody beamed into my skull all mm-hmm. creepy like mm-hmm. how has your consumption of book media changed as you've become an editor i think it's made me becoming an editor has made me want to be more just uh, really more attentive to making sure i i sort of read even more broadly i guess mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's like for a long time that's been important to me both like just as a person and like as someone writing about books and interested in books yeah. to try to have a give myself every opportunity to hear about interesting things and stuff but but as an editor it's just a little different because it's more of a you know it's a little different what is my responsibility to myself as a person and reader or to or as a writer to um being part of a publication uh that wants to to cover things responsibly and a certain range of things then that's a different impetus to want to be sort of aware of a a breadth uh of what's of what's out there so asking for a friend that is Eric. Um, <laughs> Please. What, so, so what recommendations do you have for him, mostly for him, um, of new places to, to learn about books as, as somebody working in publishing? 
Yeah. So you mean just like places to read yeah, criticism like, or... or not criticism? Okay. Like how how do you how does that discoverability like how do you go deeper with that? How with that discovering books? Yeah. So I feel like and this is maybe just like not quite answering your question because one thing. So I read like a ton of publishers catalogs yeah. is one thing. Mm. Yeah. And I've like started doing that in the past in the couple years ago when I started really writing a lot of reviews. I would sort of do that. And now I do that even more obsessively. And now that it's like actually my job, I because I used to just do it like while watching TV at, no at night or whatever. That, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> now it's like, you know, I'm on the clock right. uh, reading the Stanford University Press book catalog or whatever. Shout um, out to the University Press. I love there's Those are some of my most fun catalogs to read. I'll Especially Stanford, which what was under the gun a minute, a minute ago. Because there's such a and, you know, and. I mean, I should like say as a caveat, I like I like reading like a- academic books, and I like write about them sometimes. So that's like a predilection. But like, oh, no. there's such a they have, and it's part of what like the value of university presses and why it is uh, shitty when they're like under threat often. Yeah. But that they, oh, I feel like you guys have talked about this a little on the show. Even there's such a they can often have a space to have such to get into such niche mm-hmm. interests, both like regionally or in terms of like discipline because scholars are often able to work on sort of narrow niches of things that sometimes they, they just present a range of sometimes you'll find more s- these strange or surprising things that it, that it would be harder to find at a at a major trade nonfiction yeah. press mm. so then how do you decide what to read and review yeah <laughs> right yeah it's a great question i mean so i think one thing so just in terms of like as a as a critic um, well, there's a range of things because there's like the catalogs and then I've really come to depend a lot on on a very certain kind of like word of mouth. And I guess this yeah. is like one way in which I've really valued uh, Twitter and uh, is that it's made me like meet a lot of people who I talk about books with, which is sort of what we started talking about, which have, you know, the way that the conversation about books on Twitter is structured it has all its negatives as well. But uh, it sort of, I feel like I've, it's allowed me to create a space where I hear about stuff that might be of interest or sort of up my alley from people with similar sensibilities. So I feel like a lot of stuff comes sort of organically through that or through people I know. And then in terms of what I like work on as a critic, I mean, part of it has been over the past few years. Um, uh, I mean, I like write about lots of different kinds of stuff, but there's like certain subjects I'm particularly interested in. And it's like, so it has kind of happened naturally, but then, you know, it emerges as your like brand or whatever that people will ask you to write about certain kinds of things. I was going to say, there's sort of like a snowball effect. You know, once you're kind of known for working in a certain mm-hmm. space, it becomes not only might people commission you for it, but it becomes easier to pitch in that mm-hmm. vein, you know? Totally. It's interesting. And I like, so one other thing that just in the way I think about like criticism, which I don't know if other people like think about it this way exactly, but because uh, I, I often think think about the stuff I'm working on in terms of I'll want to write about stuff because I'm interested in a certain kind of thing at a moment or interested in a certain question or a certain uh, trend or, or something um, and that I sort of follow that interest to writing about certain things um, or what are the things like I want to read about so like one thing I took like this past year I ended up writing about this uh, this book called Kafka's Last Trial by mm-hmm. this author Benjamin Ballant, which is about this dispute over these uh, 
Kafka papers between Israel and Germany. And I, I took on the project of writing that because partly because I, it was interested in reading a bunch of Kafka, which I hadn't read yeah. very much of before. And also it engaged these other questions I was interested in. But so I did that. And then I, earlier this year, I ended up writing about another book about Kafka. And so I sort of, I like it when those things can happen that you sort of can follow an interest sure. through different reviews. Well, it's sort of like going back to what you said about how and what Laura asked, like how things get on your radar. Because to me, that's a really interesting question that kind of hits at the heart of the thing I see a lot of, which is, again, is that line between what's promotional and what's, you know, arts criticism. And to me, I, I think like the relationship really kind of distills into theirs. Like a lot of the time, the people who review the books only find the books to review because a book has a strong enough like promotional atmosphere around it you know mm -hmm. like you go on and i know for me like it's all right what books are people talking about and the ones i could list off are all the ones that are also getting reviews you know like it's very maybe maybe this is how i would kind of distill this it feels like we're not really in the age anymore of the book everybody loves but won't get a review does that make sense like it feels like the things that people talk about online quite a bit are the ecosystem is so tight like and critics are paying such close attention that that ends up being the thing that you can tie the news peg to or you can you can realize mm -hmm. will generate you know clicks if you get it up fast you know on the next day of you know whatever your hip online magazine is you know you can quickly churn out a take on it and capture some of that momentum you know mm -hmm. yeah it is an interesting thing because we were like talking about Sally Rooney earlier yeah. and um so she is someone who was sort of there's so uh, and I, I wrote a review of, of oh. her books there is such a, a glut of coverage and then it sort of got to this funny place in the cycle where suddenly there's like there were like multiple pieces that were like a kind of meta criticism about the, about the coverage <laughs> that happened with cat person as well yeah. definitely yeah yeah, the Sally Rooney thing was interesting, um, and I say that I haven't read, you know, I haven't read the novel, but can you give a little distillation of the Sally Rooney thing for our listeners? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's just, you know, she put out a novel, Normal People, that it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the one that came out this year. Yeah, and it kind of, it kind of struck a nerve, right? And ev like you're saying, you included, and you wrote a very nice re review of the book. Thank like you. everyone was reviewing this book, everyone everywhere, and then like you're saying, suddenly everyone was reviewing you know, the interview with her, they were reviewing, you know, the reviews, they were doing like this weird meta criticism where were we even talking about Sally Rooney anymore? Are we talking about her work? Are we talking about her? Are we talking about the way we talk about her? Mm -hmm. Like it was very strange and it felt and this is kind of true of the of the cat person phenomenon as well too. Um it felt all of a sudden like we were like we were talking about books in the way we discuss other kinds of viral content. You know, mm -hmm. and that always ends up in a really interesting space to me. And I often like me personally, you guys tell me what you think, but I hate it when that happens, mm -hmm. not on, from any like intellectual sense. Like it's I like reading all the pieces like I engage with this stuff. And I think by and large, I come away like glad to have done it. But on a visceral level, I really dislike it because it's it just makes like book stuff feel like we're talking about the new Marvel movie or something, you well, know, it blurs and the line between <laughs> cultural criticism yeah. and book criticism. Yeah. And, you know, to the extent, like to some extent, like books are part of culture. Right. Um, so you think that those two would marry together better. But 
I mean, I I really like when stuff like this happens because mm-hmm. everybody in book criticism just gets so confused <laughs> because then people, you know, and they like and they start, you know, bridging that gap over to cultural criticism yeah. or other people do and they respond to that, but they want to respond to that within the box. And I think like. I think on some level, I, I too have a visceral response like that, Eric, where it's like, well, just tell me about the fucking book. But like on the other hand, <laughs> yeah. quite honestly, um, I as a as somebody who works in publishing, I am very interested and energized by the way that we are still bringing well, it's very exciting books happens, into, yeah. you know, the this discussion, like how we discuss Marvel movies. Yeah. You know, like I, it's I think that we talked about taking criticism, like, you know, having book criticism as a way to keep books serious and thus relevant. Um, and I feel like this might be the other side of that coin. Yeah. What do you think, Nathan? I don't know. I'm going to have to weigh in. Is it good or bad? Um, <laughs> it's yeah, I think I mean, I think that's right, too. It is good. I feel the same like ambivalence where it feels like it both when that those sort of things really get into yeah, hit the mainstream or whatever uh, where we're like really talking about them like we talk about other stuff. It both seems, seems like good and exciting, but I, I guess maybe for me some of the times when it feels shitty, it's because I'm just not happy with like the way we talk about things in general is that mm. it I was about to see, yeah. it's like a question of eventually it's just a function of online consumption. Right. Because at a certain volume, when people start weighing in as frequently as people did on some of these things we're mentioning, they're just by rule of numbers, there are going to be bad takes. You know what I mean? Right. And so you have to be able to sift through, and this is true of books, it's true of anything you're looking for coverage on, politics, whatever it is, you have to be able to kind of sift through noise and find things that are actually valuable or useful to you and um, be willing and able to kind of tune the rest out or you'll feel miserable, which mm-hmm. is, I think, a trademark experience <laughs> for a lot of people. Yeah, and for um, me, it's like partly a, yeah. like a self-criticism yeah. or self-hatred yeah. thing where you sort of like, I don't know, it's like a part of online culture and general where you can sort of participate in something and like totally enjoy something and then in a different mood sort of look at it and be like disgusted with yourself (laughs) exactly yeah yeah i feel so seen right now and also so attacked Uh (laughs) yeah well nathan we have a special taloon it may concern for you but before we do that um, we have a question for you that we ask all of our guests which is this if you could change one thing about publishing, what would it be? Yeah, so I, I think, I don't know, this, I mean, what's our definition of one thing? Maybe I'm going way past it. But However uh, you want. What is it? You're thing? the critic. <laughs> Do whatever you want. Yeah. Throw as many things as you'd like. I mean, I think, and maybe people, I know I've listened to other episodes and don't remember what people have said, and they've probably said this, but I, I think the main thing is it would be good if there were more money for people. Yeah. Because, or more money, more uh, equally distributed among more people. Because to me, that just seems like, I mean, you guys talk all the time about a lot of the, like, the problems in in publishing. And it's not as if, like, just throwing money at things solves them. But it seems to me that a lot of them, a lot of existing problems uh, around precarity and around lack of diversity and lack of uh, diverse kinds of opportunity um if there were more money for more people to be secure in doing things a lot of those things uh would be solved if people didn't have to hustle as much as they did if opportunities weren't as restricted to people who 
already are comfortable or have uh, or have um, are more secure. Um, yeah, that seems to me sort of the root the root thing. But maybe that's like that's probably like more than one thing. You know, money is no, one thing. Money so. is one thing. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's a pretty darn good thing mm-hmm. for so much. This that answer um, reminds me a lot of what Shea Serrano said on our show. Well, I don't even remember what that was like a year ago, longer now. Um, yeah. But his big thing was like. You know, it just comes down to making sure there's the cash is going to the right places because mm-hmm. that solves solves so many different you know issues. Solves and, a lot of the problems. You know, and as we you know the thing I the book thing I was mad about today was like Donald Trump Jr. getting a giant book deal. Is he like, literate? I don't think so. But the mm-hmm. point Who's writing. I mean, it's not obvious. Oh, it won't oh be, it's yeah, obviously obvious. not him. The but... takeaway though is that there is money. Right. There, who's it going the, to? Yeah, it's just a, where is the money going? What, where, you know, who's getting it and what's being valued? Do we know valued? who bought the book? Yeah, um, a, a center of street is it, which is an imprint of Hachette. Mm. So, um, whatever. I lost the pool on whether it would be Simon and Schuster. Learn their lesson. To Loon, it may concern. I have a small YouTube following. It's nothing big, under ten thousand subscribers, but it is steadily growing. Recently, that YouTube channel has started to stress me out more and more. The time and effort I devote to it is time I could be using to work on my manuscript. My audience is mostly middle-aged men that leave me uncomfortable comments. I've been recognized once in public and the experience really freaked me out. Not only that, I've been really worn out by the short-form internet content and I don't necessarily want to contribute to the content conglomerate. That's capital C and capital C. It's gotten to the point that I don't want to continue the channel. In fact, I want to scrub its existence out entirely. However, I'm getting ready to query in the latter half of this year, and I know it's a good thing to have a social media following. I'm at a loss what to do with the channel. My audience aren't necessarily people who my book, A YA Fantasy, would appeal to, and it is quite a small audience. Part of me wants to start over and hopefully build a platform on the pure basis of being an author, but another part of me tells me that I should guard my already earned internet clout. Is it worth keeping the channel if it will aid my query? Sincerely, a reluctant influencer. An influencer is in about 20,000 scare quotes. (laughs) So, (laughs) Nathan, I think we picked this one for you specifically because I kind of see it as an extension of something you and I talk about a lot, which is having like long and short term priorities with regard to one's own writing, right? Like you and I are both working on longer manuscripts Mm -hmm. and we're both people who, especially you, who are interested in trying to publish in the shorter term, right? Like, and there's kind of this balance. Is it it better for my career to publish, you know, shorter pieces now or should that energy be put toward this thing that won't pay off till later, you know? And so maybe what would be useful for this person before we get into YouTube and YA stuff would just be to like, hear kind of how you think about that question like when you sit down and say all right i've got three hours to write today is it better to put that toward the short-term payoff or the long-term goal and kind of how do you balance that stuff out Mm -hmm. yeah yeah just to speak to that before i getting to the the uh question that i think it's a hard thing to think about i like struggle with a lot and it's we've talked about and i i think I have a tendency often to maybe overly tend toward the sort of immediate gratification of things that mm. sort of you can feel the energy around or for me that's like freelance criticism because yeah. um, it's quicker and it can get out there and it can help build a platform and it lets you sort of be participatory um, and feel that motivation of sort of more immediate things. Um, and so for me, I kind of need to sort of be really 
at the broader level and how I organize my time be conscientious if I want to be working on something longer term to to make sure I sort of really schedule out time for it because my natural tendency is sort of going to be to go toward the more immediate timely uh following building kind of thing mm-hmm. but if it's part if it's really you know in some way in service of or another important thing is the longer term thing you know that's important to to make the time for eric what is your natural tendency well for me it's to put it toward the like i think i more naturally feel the need to moose is just drinking she's drinking so much water but i find it charming so i don't think i'm gonna cut it it. leave it in leave moose in she's a thirsty Uh, girl she's a thirsty girl for the listeners who don't know but you've probably seen on twitter this dog is extremely cute (laughs) (laughs) Um, thank you so much so i i definitely lean toward uh longer term stuff probably too much so i'm on like year seven of working on this book (laughs) at this point which is too long folks don't do that um well i feel so envious of that i feel because i just yeah because i feel like i wish sometimes i had more of that impulse you know so and and i think conversely like i know that i have times where i'll see something happen i think oh i could write you know i could write and pitch on that Mm -hmm. and some of it i think you just get ingrained into familiarity and comfort zones like i definitely feel more comfortable just sitting and plotting away at my novel as opposed to quick come up with a pitch be able to write on a dead like there are some things i'm just not as good at as a writer and so a lot of the time the decision is kind of made for me talking to people (laughs) etc yes just sit in the dark work on the book that is a nice (laughs) place to be um so that that's kind of how i think about it but like the question here is interesting like this person has this um this audience of subscribers, right? And they don't necessarily see it as relevant. And they also seem to think that it's, um, you know, it's negative. It seems to be making them uncomfortable in a way that they don't really appreciate, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, what would you do? Would you I scrub mean, it? Like my... I'm tempted to tell them that it's fine because it's not their audience and it's not yeah. making them happy. Like my but... thing is it sounds like this YouTube channel is now approaching um, a point where it is going to be negatively affecting this person's um, mental and actual and sometimes very physical health. You have to guard your creative drive. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think the big thing is, you know, regardless of whether, like, let's pretend that these 10,000 subscribers would be like teenage girls who would read this YA fantasy, right? Yeah. But like, if it is stopping you from like getting your manuscript done and being recognized in real life is making you uncomfortable and it's really like starting to stress you out more and more and you see that as a trend that's continuing like i don't care if it's your audience like i care like if i'm your agent like i care that you you're gonna be able to like keep writing right like that's the first thing and especially with fiction you know, you can build an audience later. And so what I would do, um, if, if it were me, I would shut this shit down and then use it as an example of how you know how to build a yeah. following yep. and spend the next six months while you're, you know, you're working on your manuscript and you're not yet querying. Like you might be querying for a year before you get an agent or more or less. Right. I mean, who knows? Yep. Right. But like you can still like this is not end game here. Like you can delete this today and then go you know log on to the hell site which is twitter and spend the next six months making connections that are actually going to help you and not drive you insane yeah i mean i think that that's my 
like my one question, you know, for this person would be, can you just let it sit dormant? You know, sure. it's, it sounds like maybe you're at the point where you don't really want to because there's people putting in comments that are making you uncomfortable and even people recognizing you. But yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think that the answer here is, and this is true of anyone in any position in their writing career, I think, is like you have to prioritize the the engine behind all of it. You know, like you have to be willing to guard the you know the part of yourself that can produce the book at all you know that can produce you know things you're interested in because if you're letting it kind of rattle around and get um you know made uncomfortable by something like this like that is a that's a problem and Mm -hmm. that should be like if this sort of stress is preventing you from making the book how you want and building an audience that's relevant then it should absolutely go like that's feels simple to me you know but Obviously, it's trickier. Um, I guess what you say is really smart in that you can keep mention of it as evidence that you're capable of doing something like this. Yeah. All I need in the query stage is evidence. Yeah. Yeah. We're not like, no one is signing you or not based on the the YouTube channel, you know, not not at 10,000. Like, if this was like a, there's a size version of this where it's like you've got like a million followers for this thing that's insanely popular and your book is based on it at which point i might say hey maybe we should keep this but that's not what we have here it seems like right so i don't know yeah anything else to add nathan oh, i just say i'm impressed by ten thousand youtube yeah, followers yeah. i'm not, i don't know what is what is big <laughs> in the youtube world but that is impressive to me yeah yeah, that I mean, it's incredibly impressive, and we, I, you know, we don't mean to diminish the oh, achievement. Not, I oh, I didn't not. think anyone was doing just no. The, I, uh, I mean, yes, but I'm, but I'm just saying, you know, like, but I'm like, being delete ganged that up shit. on on my own show about my hateful comments once again. Someday the yeah. loon will have ten thousand followers on YouTube. We don't even have a YouTube channel, but like someday Can you imagine we just for will. a second if we had you, just like you and me, like sitting in a room, just like what would we? I don't even know. What we'd I think it should just this. be an unboxing channel. <laughs> But what would you yeah. unbox? Yeah, just like various like books, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, is the stupid thing. Or like two, bird stuff. Two, <laughs> two months ago, I ordered Kitsch. like fancy yeah. um, Korean sunscreen because I heard oh, that yeah, it's way better than American sunscreen content. for, you know, the pasties. Um, and so I unboxed that today and I could have just recorded it. The new and... $10 Patreon tier is seeing Laura unbox the sunscreen. <laughs> well, I heard she already unboxed it. It's so. 50 Ooh. SPF. I'll put it back Scam. in the box for $10 a month. <laughs> I'll put it back in that box. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are very happy to have had you on. Um, we very much appreciate it. Thank so. you so much for having me. And thank you for letting me participate in the, to the Lunar Nathan's Cern segment. Yeah.